Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. Election Day, pretty uh, amazing day that we have before us. We get to go vote, and a bunch of imperfect people who've been elected, and we're our imperfect people going out to to vote, and that's kind of what we do uh, because we live in a fallen world. But uh, we do have choices, and we can go exercise those today. I'm glad to be inviting to the show Hans von Spakovsky. He is... Uh, a wide authority on a whole range of issues, including civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, and many others. He is a, a senior legal fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. And I don't even know if that fits on a business card, does it? Hans, welcome. Uh, well, just just barely, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> you have to, like, hand out three of them just to get all that on there, it sounds like. Right. Well, I, I probably should get an oversized one. Yeah, not a bad idea. Now, uh, let's talk about election integrity. I know that's very important to you, as it is to us. Well, it is. And, uh, you know, the left, the progressive left goes around trying to say, oh, there's no there's no election integrity. There's no election fraud in the United States. We don't need to worry about it. Or, or they use the word massive. There's no massive uh, election fraud. And I, like my my question to them is, well, how massive does it have to be before you take <laughs> it seriously? Mm-hmm. Um, but look, we've got. We have a database that we started actually not too long ago at the Heritage Foundation. It's got over uh, almost 1,300 proven cases of fraud from across the country, uh, and that's just a microcosm of, of of what's out there because it's often hard to detect after the after the fact, um, and we see it unfortunately all the time. I, I don't know if Bill, if you've seen, but just in the last two months. Um, We've had cases almost all over the country. You know, uh, four locals were uh, criminally charged by the state AG in Patterson, New Jersey, for stealing absentee ballots in their recent municipal election there in Georgia. The Secretary of State uh, just sent the names of a thousand residents to uh, law enforcement because they voted twice in their June uh, primary. Um, it's just one case after another like that. There's cases out of Texas, uh, Philadelphia, et cetera, all, all happening just within the last two months. Mm-hmm. So what do we do to preserve and protect this this democratic process, which has made our, our country so great? Well, you have to fix the vulnerabilities in the system. I mean, for example, uh, look, every state ought to require you to present a photo ID uh, when you vote. And for those who say, oh, that's going to keep people out of the polls, well, that's just not true. We, we know it doesn't because for the last 10 years, states like Georgia and Indiana have had a law like that and hadn't kept anybody out of the polls. That's what the turnout data shows. Uh, a second thing that ought to happen that isn't happening anywhere in the country, unfortunately, is uh, you ought to have to provide proof of citizenship when you register to vote, because mm-hmm. there's evidence that aliens are registering and voting all over the country. And look, at the other big problem we have is um, states are, first of all, they're not doing a good job of taking people who have died and moved away off their voter lists. And second, 
Um, they're not comparing their voter lists with other states to find people who have um, uh, are registered in more than one state and are illegally voting in more than one state. And uh, I mean, I could cite you report after report of literally thousands of people who've been caught, for example, doing that latter thing, um, registering in more than one state and voting in more than one state at the same time. Mm. And that's uh, that's not good. That's a problem. No, it's not. Yeah. Um, Hans, just because my listeners are fascinated already uh, with your experience and even your name, you're you're a first generation American, aren't you? I I sure am. Uh, my father was Russian. My mother was uh, German. And that's, I mean, one of the reasons I'm so interested in trying to fix some of these problems, because look, my my childhood was filled with stories uh, from them of how quickly um, you can lose your liberties. I mean, my mother grew up in Nazi Germany. My father escaped the communists twice. And uh, I, I think we have got to be vigilant in this country to make sure we have fair and secure elections. Mm-hmm. When you hear lines like Ronald Reagan, who said, freedom is a fragile thing and is never more than one generation away from extinction. Uh, is that, does that feel like a like it's a, a fearful thing when you hear that or when you repeat that? Uh, I think he was absolutely right about that mm-hmm. because that's the same thing I heard. Um, I heard from my parents and from my grandmother. And uh, it's something that I think, you know, too many Americans take our freedom and liberties for granted, I think, and just don't understand um, how vigilant we have to be to try to preserve and protect that freedom and that liberty. Mm-hmm. So what uh, is going on across the country today in terms of having fair um, and uh, monitored uh, voting stations? And we've got officials everywhere. And do you feel like the, the, the system is, in, is working well today? It depends on where you're talking about. Okay. I mean, for example, um, look, I've been hearing all day about problems in Pennsylvania, particularly I, in Philadelphia. Yeah. And uh, it includes the fact that, um, uh, look, electioneering is not allowed in a polling place. I mean, that's the law in every single state. And the point of that is you don't want candidates and party activists inside a polling place haranguing voters to vote a particular way. And yet there are even photographs already out of that happening inside polling places uh, by Democratic activists in Philadelphia. And election officials are not stopping it. They're allowing it to happen. And in fact, um, there's also reports that those very same election officials are preventing Republican poll watchers from being inside the polling places. And look, transparency is part of the key to having fair elections. That's why in every state we have laws that allow all the political parties and all the candidates to have observers in the polling places. And we need to follow those laws strictly. And yet that's not That's not going on in Philadelphia. Bill, my other big concern is the huge increase in absentee ballots um, because – for two reasons. One, uh, those are the kind of ballots that we most often see fraud uh, Mm -hmm. involving. Anybody who doubts that, just remember two years ago – remember, we had a congressional race overturned in North Carolina because of an absentee ballot uh, fraud scheme. Uh, But the other problem with those is – Look, even if, even if there's no intentional misconduct, absentee ballots are rejected by election officials at a higher rate 
than ballots cast in person. And I worry about that. Uh, it's because, look, voters make mistakes. You know, they forget to sign a ballot. They don't provide all the information needed. Uh, the Postal Service doesn't always deliver them on time. And so I, I uh, in addition to intentional misconduct, I worry about a large number of absentee ballots being rejected. We saw that happening, as you recall, in some of the primaries this summer. Mm-hmm. Hans, when uh, when a ballot is rejected, is it done in the presence of uh, two party officials that that look and both agree that this is a invalid uh, mail in ballot? How does it get determined? It, well, it, gets, it depends on the jurisdiction. What should be happening is there should be observers representing both political parties, or if there's you know more than two. But basically, the political party should have observers in the county election headquarters observing the handling and processing of each absentee ballot. But, I mean, on that point, for example, there's also been reports that election officials very gleefully in Philadelphia are keeping observers so far back that they can't see what's going on. Hmm. Well, that's troubling for sure. Now, obviously, COVID, it, it is. Yeah, COVID has obviously made it very uh, necessary to have more mail-in ballots. I'm just wondering uh, if there's how many, how many million mail-ins do we have this election, Hans? Do you know? In, in prior elections, I think like in the 2016 election, we had about 40 a little over 40 million mail-in or absentee ballots. There are estimates this year that it could be as much as two to three times that number. Mm. Okay, so there's going to be uh, some, there's a lot of work to do. Um, And if they don't start counting uh, mail-in ballots in like Pennsylvania, for example, I don't think they can start till today. Uh, They've got a lot to go through if they had three and a half million early votes, early ballots. Well, particularly also because in Pennsylvania, the state Supreme Court, without any authority to do so, actually extended the deadline for the receipt of absentee ballots. Same thing happened in North Carolina. Um, there, the state board of elections, basically in in uh, violating federal law, extended the receipt for the for uh, uh, the deadline for receipt of absentee ballots to almost a week and a half after the election. Mm, wow. Let me take a little break. Hans von Spakovsky is my guest. Uh, we'll take a short break and be right back. show. My guest is Hans von Spakovsky. And Hans, I'm curious, uh, the idea that we would one day as Americans do an all mail-in uh, election, that would that would be dangerous, wouldn't it? Yeah, it, it, it would in particular. And look, even if you uh, want to argue about the fraud problem and other things, look, here's the big problem I think that nobody ever talks about and people should think about. And that is Look, if you if you vote by mail, you're usually voting weeks before Election Day. Mm-hmm. And that means that means that if uh, information or news comes out about a candidate that is important to the choice you made right before the election, guess what? It's too late to do anything about it. Yeah. 
And this that's particularly a problem in primary elections. I mean, just about think about what happened in March. Remember, before COVID-19 shut down the country, we had Super Tuesday, right? We had more than a, a dozen primaries and states all over the country. And and we had a hot Democratic presidential competition going on. Well, what happened uh, just two days and one day before uh, Super Tuesday? Two of the contenders dropped out, Pete Buttigieg and Senator Klobuchar. Right. And yet those states have uh, had a lot of early voting and people voting by, uh, by mail through the absentee ballot process. If you look at the vote totals for those two candidates who weren't in the election on Election Day, they received literally hundreds of thousands of ballots uh, in their favor because people voted before they dropped out. Those voters wasted their votes. Yeah, that's that's pretty sobering. Um, so there is so much power in, in Election Day. And by then you have heard uh, every campaign speech and you've uh, had a chance to evaluate the candidates and make your choice. And I, right. I think there's many states right now that allow people to change their vote. They can res- they can resign their their vote and then revote. Can they do that? Am I saying well, that right? You can, you can do it in some states if they've received your absentee ballot. But but, uh, you know, it's it's a bit of a bureaucratic mess trying yeah. to first uh, get election officials to find your ballot and then getting them to issue a new one, which you then have to vote again. And I, it's just it, it's just very difficult to do that. And uh, again, um it's just I think it's much better to wait until Election Day uh, to vote when you've got all the information that's going to come out about the candidates. Yeah. Does it not trouble uh, people would, when 14,000 ballots have been cast by people who have been you know, dead for a long time? Uh, you, you would think they ought to be concerned about that. And, of course, that's another problem that uh, the Public Interest Legal Foundation, for example, found in its, its reporting on – uh, problems throughout the country, uh, and that's that's a real issue. I mean, look, the other thing that concerns me about this election is something we just kind of mentioned earlier, and that is the fact that uh, it takes a lot longer to handle, process, and count absentee ballots. Because there's such a, a huge increase in this election, um, if the election is close, uh, we may have uh, delays that we're just not used to in finding out who won the election if uh, it's taking a long time for election officials to go through all those absentee ballots and count them. Mm-hmm. Hans, where do, you, where do you live? I live in Virginia. Okay. Now, in your area, do you anticipate there's going to be unrest or, or, or rioting in your, in your uh, area post-election? Uh, well, let me tell you, I was actually in the District of Columbia, the nation's capital, uh, this week. Uh, in fact, yesterday I drove through, and um, it looks like uh, a war zone hmm. because all of the buildings, all downtown D.C., um, uh, the owners have put up uh, have put plyboard and wood over the entire first floors of their buildings to cover up all the windows and walls and everything else, because they are expecting, uh, frankly, uh, violence and potential arson and looters and things like that. What are your thoughts on that? I'm curious. Well, my thoughts on that are that um, the mayors of the big cities, including, unfortunately, the mayor of the District of Columbia, 
instead of doing everything it can to stop that kind of violence and to control that kind of violence, they've, they've actually encouraged hmm. those kind of protesters. And, you know, you've had uh, bad prosecutors, what we call rogue prosecutors. Uh, I think the one in, in Portland, for example, just, just announced that he was dismissing and refusing to prosecute violent protesters in, in over 500 cases. That's very troubling. I mean, because you look at these hardworking Americans that have sacrificed maybe several decades or generations in their family business, and they just watch it disappear overnight. Yeah, and, and the, I mean, the worst thing about it is, particularly, for example, the, 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 some of the protests organized by Black Lives Matters is the looting and arson has been in uh, neighborhoods where small businesses have been hit the worst. In fact, many black-owned uh, and minority-owned businesses are the ones who've been destroyed and burned down. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it seem reasonable that uh, people on both sides of the aisle would, would say, we think violence is just a bad idea? Yeah, you would think so, but um, that's not what's happened with the mayors of many of these big cities uh, who have, like I said, um, uh, encouraged the protests that have turned into this kind of violence and have held back the police from being able to do anything about it. Yeah, and it wasn't that long ago that this kind of behavior would be almost unthinkable or so bizarre and now when you see pictures of boards going up on businesses, you go, oh, okay, this f- feels a little bit more normal now, which is just kind of sad. Yes, I, I, hope, I hope to goodness that we don't um, normalize that kind of behavior. Uh, we, we need to have uh, – look, nobody, nobody says there's anything wrong with uh, peaceful protests, but that is not what has been happening, and, and you've got to stop the kind of violence that is happening, because if you don't, it will simply escalate. Mm-hmm. So um, when we talk about uh, mail-in ballots, um, and do you think uh, that by by when will all they be counted? When do you think all the ballots will be counted? Let's just say a winner is declared tonight. When do you think the ballots that came by mail will all be accounted for one way or the other? Look, I don't really know how to answer that because it depends on how well election officials in particular states have prepared. And I'll give you an example of of what I mean. Um, Look, New York State held its primary election on June 23rd. Officials there encouraged everybody to vote by mail, and they had an exponential increase, really an avalanche, of voters using the mail instead of voting in person. Well, election officials in New York weren't prepared for it. And it took them, if you can believe this, six weeks to process and count the absentee ballots cast in their primary election. Now, hopefully since then, they've realized what they've done wrong, and they are now prepared for the big increase they're going to have with absentee ballots in this general election. But if they haven't prepared, uh, you could see the same kind of thing happen again in New York and potentially in other states. But again, it depends on how well election uh, officials have prepared for this very problem. Mm-hmm. Hans, do you have any idea how you, the U.S. ranks among voters in the world? You mean in terms of, of turnout? Yeah, ter- in terms of turnout. You know, we, we uh, all of the Western democracies have had a problem now for quite a while in turnout going down. We, we have lower turnout uh, than other countries, too, but 
you know, a lot of it depends on the election. And, to give, and what I mean by that is if people are interested in election, they tend to turn out. And the best example of that in recent years was 2008. Uh, in 2008, when Barack Obama first ran, we had yeah. the highest turnout in a presidential election since the early 1960s. And it was, you know, he, whether you liked him or didn't like him, he excited voters and people turned out. Uh, to vote in that election, and uh, that's that's what generates turnout. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I so appreciate you spending time today. What uh, what are your plans tonight? A little TV. I'm going to be doing. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be doing what everybody else is doing. I'm going to be watching the t- the returns and seeing what's happening all over the country. Yeah, and when you look at analytics, uh, do you? Um, do you do your own calculations, or do you do your own electoral uh, map, or what do you do? I do it to the extent that I can, although sometimes we, in past elections, we've gotten results so quickly it's sometimes hard to keep up. I'm not sure that will be a problem tonight because I think we may get returns slower than we've gotten in quite a while in our presidential races. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about the uh, way in which you uh, become president of the United States, which is a very big deal, but it seems like Nowadays, becoming president is just a job on your way to getting even a better job because it seems that people leave office and make millions and millions of dollars. I mean, I think of Truman leaving office and he literally put a suitcase in his car and drove back to Kansas. Yeah, no, that's very true. And that certainly was the story with our our last president, Barack Obama, who uh, is now a multimillionaire. And that was certainly not the case before he ran for president. Yeah. And there was, I think, nine uh, presidents that never went to college. And um, I just love some fun facts about presidents. I've been kind of looking into them lately. I don't yep. know. No, I, 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 all, all that kind of stuff is very, very uh, interesting. I, I mean, think about it. Donald Trump is is one of the first presidents we've had in a long time that had not been elected to or run for office uh, ever before. And that's also very unusual. It is very unusual. Um and I, I heard FDR was very superstitious. I mean, he used to cancel appointments on Friday the 13th, and he, he wouldn't even sit at tables of 13. And he had, <laughs> that I had not heard. <laughs> yeah, he had five adult kids that between them had 19 marriages, 15 divorces, and 29 children. Wow. <laughs> Interesting people out there. And uh, yeah, Hans, sure thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been fun to talk. Sure, thanks for having me. Yep. Hans von Spakovsky has been my guest. All right, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, uh, Pastor Jeff Dodge has really got a wonderful study on the book of Titus. And I've been studying Titus a little bit myself and love it. And I think you're going to learn a lot from uh, Jeff Dodge. He's a wonderful Bible teacher and pastor. And uh, we'll be right back with him.
Welcome back to the show. Awfully glad to welcome back Jeff Dodge to the program. He's teaching pastor at Veritas Church in Iowa City, and he's written a really a timely book for right now. I think it's important that uh, we talk about it again some more. He wrote a, a study guide on the book of Titus, and frankly, uh, it's a phenomenal book. And as we start to get into studying Titus, we realize that the churches uh, were kind of a mess and uh, there was a need for uh, pastors and leaders to kind of come in and strengthen churches that had been planted and and to try to negotiate through some interesting personalities and relationships. And it sounds kind of familiar with almost what's going on today in the world. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's really good to be back with you, Bill. It does. There is a little bit of a parallel with just uh, messiness in the churches today. Yeah, I, I'm telling you, it is encouraging, I guess, in that way, in yeah. a kind of broken way. But no, just that we can, I don't know, approach the difficulties that we have right now uh, with a little bit less despair because God has been pulling his church through and pouring grace into his church for all these 2,000 years. And so we look back at even some of the most primitive early churches, and man, they were just chock full of problems, a lot like ours. And yet, were sustained and flourished and continued to grow and expand. And so there's hope for us as well, you know. So, yeah, yeah it is encouraging in that way. Yeah. You know, it's interesting in Paul's letters, he would some oftentimes open up with uh, Thanksgiving and, and sometimes just a mention of prayer. In, in Titus, um, we, we, Timothy sort of opens up, uh, just like in First Timothy, kind of opens up with, let's just get right to the point. Let's get right to yeah. the instructions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and you wonder, too, I mean, it's hard to reconstruct every uh, moment that the apostle or other early writers um, were experiencing, but it's very likely that he had, you know, maybe a few writing instruments, mm-hmm. uh, papyrus, whatever. And so he, he like, didn't want to waste time. <laughs> he right. didn't want to waste paper, didn't want to waste ink or whatever he was using because um, what he had to say was so valuable. That, that's why Titus, I think, is maybe especially intriguing is because he packed so much in it's kind of pregnant with a lot of thought in there you know and so um i like the the kind of tightness of it not not many wasted words in that little book yeah jeff i like that too i mean there's some something valuable that we learn when you have to be intentional because of limited supplies right i mean i think of of days when you would have film that went into a camera uh, right. You really were intentional about your photos. You wanted to make sure yeah. your lighting was right and, and everything was set to go because you didn't want to waste a, a picture. And so to remember those days? Remember I that? do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> then you would take the film out of the camera, t- and I, t- I took it to the local drugstore, and they right. would send it away to Chicago, and I'd get it two weeks yeah. later. And then you'd get, pick up your pictures, and you go, hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. And you'd go, I don't oh, like any no. of these. I know. I just I, I was thinking about those days not so long ago, running up to the drugstore <laughs> to pick up my photograph. <laughs> yeah. So we di- we digress a little bit, but there is something interesting about when resources are limited, like like you probably said, uh, paper, pens, that kind of stuff. Paul Paul gets right to the point, which I like. Yeah, I so, agree. Yeah, let's talk about the the specific purpose in uh, in writing his letter to, to Titus. Yeah. Well, and and even in those opening words that that you're referring to, the way that he goes right at it. I do love the fact that he introduces himself right off as Paul, a servant of God. Love it. And then secondly, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. I mean, that that real impulse to reach for servanthood as like the highest mark 
you know, the, like the like the highest degree we could attain. Uh, like when you go way back into the uh, first pages of our Bibles, uh, Moses, it's not until the very end of his life that he is kind of honored, actually by Joshua, um, when referring to Moses as Moses, servant of the Lord. Like you think of all the unbelievable things that Moses did and, and what a you know profound figure that he is, um, like the highest um, – you know, title he could be given uh, by his predecessors and uh, was servant, servant of the Lord. And then it wasn't until Joshua ended his life at the end of Joshua that he's finally being able to be called Joshua, servant of the Lord. It's almost like you have to labor your whole life in faithfulness before you're being privileged with giving that, given that name servant. So I just love that Paul is actually setting a pace right off for Titus. Hey, you're not going there as some exalted bishop. You're not going there as some exalted authoritative figure you're going in there as a a servant follow my example titus going as as a servant Mm -hmm. right so so anyway i just love that i mean you're two words (laughs) into the thing and already there's something to be contemplated just in the pattern of of paul's ministry and example and stuff but but yeah so titus was to go in and uh there were believers already there so he wasn't necessarily have to having to start with evangelism, though that was certainly going to be part of it, but the church had had begun. There were believers, but they were just a mess. They were not consolidated into formed communities of the church, and Mm -hmm. so they needed leadership and and all that. So that's that's really why Titus was was dropped there to then kind of take over, grab the baton from Paul and and really help the church to form. Yeah. So Jeff's book is called uh, Titus, uh, a study guide with leaders' notes. It's a life-changing truth in a world of lies, and I think this is uh, such an important uh, study right now, especially in the times that we're in. Give us an example, uh, Jeff, of like a typical kind of lesson. I know lesson one says truth that leads to godliness that grabbed my attention instantly. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's right out of the gates again in in chapter one. So, So the way the the study guide is set up is there's, you know, we just basically start with Titus one and work, work our way through. So uh, pretty methodical in that mm-hmm. way, but there's usually a big idea or a theme that we're finding in, in each of the sections. So the encouragement is for um, men and women to do this in, in groups so that you can actually dialogue your way through this. So you do some work at home, you go through uh, the passage of scripture. We've got some, questions to kind of stir up. It's not so much fill in the blank as if, you know, there's just objective answers. They're more questions to stir the spiritual imagination and to get people to really dig in. Just slow down. Basically, just slow down. Give them questions enough to slow down and and do a careful read. And then I offer an article, you know, something to, to, you know, really, especially maybe pinpoint um, one special message or lesson out of that passage and then people are to get together and really discuss it. Let's let's all talk together about what we found individually and then uh you know let's collaborate on this and, mm-hmm. and see what else we can we can mine out of there. So yeah, that whole idea that truth leads to godliness, that's that's right off in those opening verses that truth was never just to land in the in the brain. It wasn't just to stimulate our thinking. That truth was to hit us and kind of explode into our lives. It was supposed to affect our um, emotions, our relationships, 
um, certainly our virtues, our ethics. It was to, it was supposed to look like something once truth really landed, and so that's one of the primary things that you're going to see all the way through that he introduces in those opening words. There is, hey, Titus, this gospel. It's got to be a truth that that changes, transforms individuals and and indeed a whole community of people. I love what you just said, Jeff. That that truth would explode in into a believer, and I I, I pray that as well. I mean, I pray that all the time because. There's sometimes so much scar tissue around a person's heart that it's sometimes hard for them to receive the yes. powerful truth of the gospel. So yes. it really is through a, a lot of prayer and persistence that, and, and, and praying that the Holy Spirit will make that truth alive in a person's heart. Yeah, absolutely. And it is exactly what you just brought up. It is a work of renewal by the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's going all the way into chapter 3, but, but that whole very supernatural work is a renewing work. It's where the Holy Spirit is the one being poured out on us abundantly. I love that language of chapter three. Um, so that we we are not, we're, we're more than just justified before God, like a right standing before God. We're actually renewed. There's new life that's brought to us. We're, we're different people, transformed people because of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about truth and leadership, I know in Titus they do talk about elders, and right. those were probably considered uh, men considered that had the greatest amount of wisdom and experience in the community. Uh, right. They also were, needed to be uh, above reproach, which was vital yeah. for leadership. Um, so who was making those determinations back at that yeah. time? Yeah, that's one of, I think maybe for me at least, one of the most uh gripping true that that hit me as I was going through this is that um, this list of qualifications for eldership in in chapter one here is actually very intentionally subjective. Um, In other words, it's not objective little checklist um, uh, of a certain age, uh, certain standing, whatever. It's it's character qualities. And so because of that, there's kind of a sliding scale for all of us. In other words, when it says you're not to be arrogant, you're not to be greedy for money. Well, every one of us would look in the mirror and say, okay, if I was being completely transparent, there's arrogance in my soul. There's greed in my soul, right? So it's not a checklist as if these things have to be completely absent. It's that among the people of God, you're exemplary in these ways. You're battling this. You're seeking the renewed life. You're seeking to have the mind of Christ and so, you know, a place like Crete, where they're all brand new believers, you know, some are just a little bit older in faith than the others, but basically all, well, there are some that are already, you know, getting more traction in their Christian life and are, are standing out. And, and that was true for me when I came to Christ in college. Some of my buddies, you know, just seem to just kind of mature more fast, you know, more quickly and, and gave examples for the rest of us to follow and so forth. So, so, you know, you trust that in any given place, uh, like I know when I first came to Christ and became kind of a leader among my friends, well, then in other contexts, I would never be able to make the grade, right? Because the others were so far ahead of me or whatever. So every, every locale has to look around and say, not compromise the qualifications, but just realize that, for where we're at and and how far we are in this journey, some of us are leading and giving us an example of these things, and they're they're the ones that we're going to set aside to to chart the course for the rest of us to follow. Mm-hmm. 
Jeff, I'm still looking at some of the verses in chapter 1. I haven't got, yeah. gotten out of there yet, but there are talks about the rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception. I had to yeah. pause when I read that. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of that going on now to you. <laughs> it sure seems that way. And oh, then in verse oh. 11, it says, they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households. Yeah. Say yeah, more about that. Yeah, that's one of the just harsh realities is that this brand new uh, community of God's people we're already experiencing false teachers. Already the enemy was right on the mm. heels of, of the apostolic witness to bring in these false teachers who were disruptive, deceptive, uh, even of the circumcision party. So bringing in law and duty, uh, working against just the freedom of the gospel. And it's just amazing, right? Anytime you see a a real forward charge for the for the gospel it doesn't seem like it takes long before all of a sudden there's the enemy trying to deceive mm, pull so people true. away from the true faith and and so they had it already so that was kind of you know proactively and positively he's being urged to to find the right kind of leaders and immediately as you pointed out right on the heels of that hey and also keep a lookout because there are kind of anti-leaders out there. There are those that are going to be antagonistic to the gospel. And you you got to keep an eye on them as you're keeping an eye out for good and positive and spirit-filled leaders to really uh, lead the charge. Mm-hmm. Jeff Dodge is my guest. We're talking about his book, Titus, a study guide with uh, leaders' notes. Also, it's life-changing truth in a world of lies. That's the subtitle. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, uh, lots more with Jeff. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill talking to Jeff Dodge today. He's written a great book on Titus. Short little book. Uh, I mean, the book of Titus is short, uh, but Jeff does some incredible analysis of it, and I uh, recommend you get your hands on a copy. It's interesting, Jeff, when you talk about deception that we'll encounter throughout the day, the important thing to remind ourselves about deception is the very word. It means we might get fooled. Yeah, yeah. It's attractive. It seems right. Yeah. Yeah, we need we need help. We need God to pierce through the the cloud of that so that we can actually be guided because by nature we're we're pretty foolish and pretty apt to be you know listening to the wrong voices. But the deception part is you think you can be uh you can have your your our readiness uh against deception, but people get fooled all the time. Oh, all the time. I do. I I, <laughs> I know. I know. Right. Um, I was just yep. thinking. I've got the sensor on my on my uh, side mirror of my car. So mm-hmm. if I'm going to change a lane and there's a car in the next lane, it goes off, starts yeah. making this big noise. However, yeah, we need those. <laughs> however, you sometimes when you're going through a drive-through, you'll turn it off and then forget to turn it back on. <laughs> uh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. That's a great illustration. So you kind of lose your sensor indication that troubles are coming. Um, so. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do we live our life and getting up in the morning to make sure our sensors are on and ready to go? That's a that's a great illustration of, of just, yeah, getting casual and thinking, oh, I don't need that, or just forgetting about it, right? And and how dependent we are, though, truly, on feeding 
our souls for the Holy Spirit's use, the truth, so as to have it at the ready, you know, that that alarm goes off quickly when we need it. Yeah, and then stuff comes rushing at you 100 miles an hour. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. I know Titus goes into um, the subject of submission, and I know that's an ongoing issue that uh, we love to hear lots of teaching and and biblical wisdom on, so the... uh, you're on. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm telling you that you talk about kind of a countercultural voice, right? right? Oh, yeah. I mean, when, when I'm being told to submit to rulers, to submit to elders, to submit to bosses, um, it, is, it is unmissable in the scriptures. And even in this tiny little book, <laughs> we're having to face it, right? Can't avoid that. But, man, it goes against our grain, and maybe especially as Western American Christians who value liberty, you know, and shaking off shackles of, of servanthood. And instead, we're, we're being told that it is a virtue, actually, to, to actually follow, to submit ourselves to, to those that are in authority. Yeah, we can't, we can't squirm out from under that one, even in this little book. Yeah, and it's uh, interesting. It's a heated discussion often, and it's it's a misunderstood thing. So it's always good when we we get a nice, solid biblical understanding of it. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I appreciate that. Um, so as we uh, as we go through this study book, uh, how much time do you think is is laid out for this book? Is it designed mm-hmm. to be a four eight week study? Yeah. Yep. So um, you just take one. I think it's seven, right? Is the number of yeah seven? I had to look myself. <laughs> yeah, I just glanced at myself. Looks like seven. Yeah, there's seven of them. But um, and then, but each week, I'll tell you, I find at least that it varies, honestly, depending on on what God tends to be doing in my soul. So, for instance, in uh, lesson four, there's this. Um, moment where you go through in this exercise and you, and you pull over and consider how is the gospel really impacting the way I think about respect for others, self-control, love, avoiding slander, and those kind of things um, that are all uh, introduced in the book of Titus. And uh, what, what you do is you have to answer, you have to look in the mirror of the word and say, okay, when it comes to slander, when I'm not believing that Jesus is enough for me. When I'm walking outside of the truth of the gospel, boy, I'm gossiping, I'm putting other people down, I want to feel better about myself, I tend to talk about the sins of others. But when I'm really anchored in the gospel, when I'm when I'm focused with the mind of Christ and Jesus is enough, I know I'm a big sinner who's been forgiven. I'm still a work in progress, and so I'm willing to admit my sin, accept correction, and so forth. So I'm just saying you go through those, well, depending on the day or the week you're having, some of these lessons might take a while to go through, not because it's so difficult to understand, but maybe God's going to be, you know, really zeroing in on something in your soul, and Mm -hmm. it's going to take a while more on your knees and in reflection uh, than in hardcore study. You know, you could fly through the actual study guide with pen in hand pretty handily. It's not a very aggressive kind of study. But I'm hoping, trusting, and praying that people will find that it's it's penetrating enough that um, they'll want to linger there yeah. and take some time, you know. I think of some of the character qualities that are listed in, the, in Titus, um, like truth-speaking, 
in a, in a land of lies. Of course, yeah. those who speak truth, God's timeless and pure truth will shine like a city on a hill. What a great reminder yeah. for all of us right now. Man, absolutely. Just that idea of integrity, right? Yeah. And if we're not walking in integrity, we can make the gospel look bad, look terrible. Mm-hmm. And we hate that, right? I, I, I want Jesus to look good. I, I, I want to present him and his teachings uh, beautifully to the world and attractive. Yeah. So that's yeah, a huge integrity is a huge, huge thing. Just a couple of minutes left, Jeff. I know in uh, Titus, three times self-control is brought up. Yeah, I think that's kind of a critical uh, thing here in this in this time, this day and age. Oh man, and it's interesting because it spans the ages, right? Older men are to be in self control, women to be in self control, and then young men in <laughs> self control. Right. So apparently, we're always going to have to be working on it. You yeah, know? I mean, uh, he tailor makes a lot of the virtues, but that one, it seems, we're going to need to keep circling around that one. Well, I'm 57, but in so many ways, it's that Holy Spirit virtue and and gift and fruit of self-control that we we're always we just need to put ourselves in a submissive posture to christ you know to walk in self-control did you have a particular moment from studying titus that just came to you in in a new fresh way that just sort of rocked your world i think for me it emboldened me um to call people to just obedience um i do think that you know, and our desire to rescue the gospel from any kind of works salvation, we can sometimes be, uh, well, theologians call it antinomian, like against the law, like we don't want to bring up works in any way. Well, Titus is a real correction to that, right? I mean, like we said in that first couple verses, truth leads to godliness, right? And and so later, after he just does this beautiful uh, restating of the gospel in chapter 3 and he saved us, not by works of righteousness, but according to his mercy, his washing of regeneration. Then right after that, he says, hey, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves mm-hmm. to good works. Yeah. So he's never confusing uh, the gospel. The gospel doesn't come to us through good works, but having embraced the new life of the gospel, we need to insist that it it transform us yeah. and, and hold each other accountable. And so, yeah, for me at least, I feel like that was driven home really more deeply than ever, that it, we need to call each other out and, yeah. and insist on it. Jeff, thank you so much for doing the show. It's been a delight. Oh, what a delight. I always uh, appreciate talking to you, Bill. Thank you so much. Jeff Dodge has been my guest. His book is called Titus, Life-Changing Truth in a World of Lies. And that wraps up our show on this election day. Let's be in prayer tonight. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.